Support for America Made Easy and the following message come from Nuable Levitas, the transatlantic joint venture supporting ambitious SMEs was setting up in the United States. We help make entrepreneurs' lives easier by providing an operational solution for their U.S. expansion strategies so they can focus on driving revenue and doing what they got into business to do in the first place. Hello and welcome to the America Made Easy podcast, the bi-weekly show where we help international SMEs tackle the complexity of setting up and growing their business in the American market. I'm your host, Morgan Piersdorf, and on today's episode, we are exploring tax and helping potential and current investors understand both the complexity of the U.S. tax system and how best to navigate it for long-term success in the market. Today, I am joined by Scott Stevenson. Scott is a California native and a practicing accountant since 1978. He's worked as an auditor, controller, analyst, and tax professional in both private practices and for not-profit organizations. We've been lucky to have him at Avidus Group for nearly three years now, leveraging his expertise across business and individual taxation at the federal and state level. Scott leads our tax department and of late has been spearheading our work and helping our clients navigate federal support in the current pandemic. Scott resides in sunny Los Angeles, but is joining us today from our operational hub in Billings, Montana. Okay, well, welcome, Scott, to the America Made Easy podcast, where we're glad we could get you on short notice. And um, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Morgan. Uh, it's quite an exciting uh, task for me because I don't usually do it in this fashion. Webinars, which is mostly one direction, uh, has been my forte so far. Well, we're happy that uh, that we could expose you to a new medium and that other listeners are really going to enjoy picking your brain a little bit um, through this, this medium today. And uh, just for the reference of those listening in, uh, I believe you're joining us uh, from our Billings hub uh, out in Montana. So what's, what's the weather like today? Well, yes, I am. Um, and uh, it dawned at 10 degrees uh, outside with oh, snow on the ground. Um, when I left sunny Southern California, and it was Sunday, sunny on Monday, it was uh, about 90 degrees at the high for the day. Although I understand it's actually gotten a little bit cooler. It's only like about 75 today. So, uh, yeah, the, quite, a, quite a change. Um, I'm used to it. I have two wardrobes now where before I joined Avitas, I only had one, basically a Southern, <laughs> a Southern California summer wardrobe. Yeah, you got to be prepared when, when traveling into Billings because you, you don't know what weather you're going to get. I've certainly been there in October as well. And uh, yeah, it's uh, and there was lots of snow, so <laughs> uh, yes. have to be prepared for for all seasons. That is correct. That is correct. Well, me, <laughs> well, again, we're we're glad that you've joined us to to dig in a, to a topic which I think a lot of our listeners uh, naturally find intimidating with the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's tax. Um, there's so many, you know, kind of three three uh, letter acronyms with oh, the yes. federal government in the U.S. that seem intimidating, <laughs> and certainly the IRS or the Internal Revenue Service is one of them. Uh, but it's certainly something that that can be tackled and done in the right way. It's just kind of digging into it and figuring out um, what the nuance is. So we we hope to do that a little bit with you today. But of course, it's certainly not something we can cover in one podcast. So listeners, don't worry. We'll certainly dig into this topic again, but we're delighted that that Scott can kind of help us kick this off. Um, and, and so I wonder on that, in that vein, Scott, if maybe you could just give us a little bit of a lay of the land for our international investors that are, that are listening in. 
uh, on really how the tax code in the U.S. is managed and segmented from the state and, and the federal perspective, both, if you don't mind. Sure. There, it is complicated, um, especially for anyone who is used to a more unified uh, tax management system. In the United States, the Internal Revenue Service manages the federal tax code, uh, and obviously they are the ones in which we file our tax returns with. However, there are also 50 states, and every one of those states has some sort of regimen when it comes to state income taxes. So even states that may not have a personal income tax, they also do have business taxes, some sort of business taxes. Uh, Many times it's an income tax. Uh, Sometimes it's just a sales and use tax. Sometimes it's an occupancy tax, a business tax, gross receipts tax, all of which are managed at the state level. And then to complicate matters further, in some states, cities actually have their own income taxes. Uh, New York comes to mind very quickly. If you file a New York state income tax return and you happen to be operating within the confines of New York City, you're also going to file a New York City income tax return. Uh, That obviously complicates matters even further. Now, about the only benefit is with the e-filing system these days, we tend to be able to comply with most of these through electronic filing, that does make things a bit simpler. But for the uninitiated, it seems like everywhere one turns around, there's another taxing authority standing there with their handout demanding taxes and obviously a return to support those taxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think that the investors uh, and the small and mid-sized companies that are kind of listening into this have likely done a little bit of homework themselves and mm-hmm. have have um, found that, that okay, the, the rate is this in this state or this in another state. Uh, but I think probably, correct me if I'm wrong, the rule of thumb is you can't quite escape U.S. tax. There isn't um, a secret, you know, a secret place to go or to set oh, up no. or, or a way to, to avoid it, right? It's just, a, it's a fact. <laughs> it is a fact. And no, there is really no way to get away from it. Um, and again, as I mentioned, so for federal tax purposes, it's relatively straightforward. Uh, I mean, it is, can be very complicated, especially for a foreign investor working in the United States. But the, the states themselves, um, they either follow the federal code generally, they follow the federal code almost ex- completely. Uh, then there are other states which take the federal code, drop it off, and start over and do their own thing. Um, California, for instance, has many, many pages of exceptions to what the federal code provides. So it is almost an independent taxing system. Uh, Texas operates uh, completely different. Uh, They have a gross receipts tax, essentially. Uh, There are thresholds, obviously, if you're below those thresholds, you do not have to uh, pay tax. But there's also a reporting requirement no matter what. And I think this is where some people get caught and say, well, I don't owe any tax. Why should I have to file a return? And the answer is the states require it or they penalize. And I will tell you this, that the penalties for failure to file across the United States, federal and state and local, have all gotten more expensive. Hmm. That's a, you've mentioned something there, um, the word threshold. And I think that, that can be um, something that surprises a lot of our listeners, understanding that each state will have a different threshold. Um, I believe that can be, you know, obviously a dollar or a dollar figure Mm-hmm. Um, probably ranging anywhere from, I don't know, at least 100,000 on up to 500,000 potentially, but, but even the number of, of transactions. Could you maybe just speak a little bit to that about 
that house thresholds might vary from state to state and to the extent that companies um, you know, need to be aware of when they might reach those thresholds. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it is going to be a high-level view, however, as we already talked about. The, there are two major issues, uh, and the first one has to do with what you just described, which is fundamental shift in the sales and use tax arena. So in the middle of 2018, the United States Supreme Court, in its decision, South Dakota versus Wayfair, made a decision to overturn about four decades' worth of case law and completely revamp the landscape for sales and use tax. And that is where there is a specific threshold. Uh, in the case of South Dakota, anyone matching the South Dakota model, uh, it's $100,000 per year of, transa- of dollar sales or 200 transactions. Meet either of those thresholds and you're required to collect and pay over sales and use tax to the state of South Dakota. Now, uh, other states have adopted the same Wayfair model, but they have different thresholds. For instance, California, which one would think might be very high, actually their thresholds are much higher, and so it's easier for state, uh, companies to escape having to collect and pay over sales taxes in California when all they're doing is shipping goods to California. Now, income taxes. Mm-hmm. There are thresholds for income taxes that differ from the Wayfair decision, and the Wayfair decision does not have a direct impact on income taxes. Most often, income taxes are going to occur, or the requirement to Uh, file return and pay income taxes to a specific state when one has physical nexus. You have an office in that state, you have employees in that state, more often than not you're going to have physical nexus and then you're going to be required to file return and pay taxes. Uh, If you're in multiple states, uh, all states subscribe to what's called an apportionment ratio. Uh, It's generally based on sales now. They used to be a three-factor formula which is almost completely gone. Uh, That makes our lives as tax professionals a little bit easier. But the, the fact of the matter is, if you have a certain amount of sales in a state, they may want you to file in that state, especially if you have physical nexus. There's a concept called economic nexus, which is becoming more prevalent. And we are still exploring all of the ramifications of economic nexus, which means that simply selling goods or services to a state may require an individual company to file in that state an income tax return. And then, of course, if there are any taxes owed, then they have to pay those taxes to the state. Mm-hmm. And I guess that that uh, Supreme Court decision that you mentioned is kind of rising out of the growth of e-commerce, online sales, and and I guess states are seeing their their uh, nice. revenues go down a little bit and wanted to be sure they're getting a, a piece of the pie with all of these transactions, um, I, which is, has led to Nexus not really being such a, a black and white issue, but something that um, having that kind of guidance and, and tax analysis, it will be really helpful to a company that's trying to figure out where they, in fact, might have liability. Yes. In fact, the first two or three pages of the opinion uh, issued by the United States Supreme Court specifically identify the reason that the previous court case, the previous law, which had been a Supreme Court case, was being overturned. And uh, a number of factors. Obviously, the change in the e-commerce landscape was one of the prevalent ones. And the other was the other one you just mentioned. Uh, The states lost a lot of income. And the fact of the matter is it became sort of a, a, a dodging game where one sees, well, I don't have to collect taxes for this state. I will simply stay out of that state. I can sell that state, but I'm not going to have to collect and pay over sales taxes. Um, You know, there are complicating factors that, you know, the states, some of the states at least, have made a little bit easier for people to file. California has pages of district taxes. But when concerning that, most most requirements now don't require the, the individual company to 
send those taxes out for each district. But uh, it almost absolutely requires now that uh, a company that is engaging in sales of uh, not only goods but services, some states tax services on a sales tax basis, that they have the mm-hmm. right uh, tax software, all right, to manage their point of sale and bundle up into buckets, so to speak, uh, all of the sales for those specific states know exactly what taxes have to be collected, collect from the person that making purchasing those services, and making sure that those then taxes are available to be transmitted to the various state governments. Very complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's a good point on on the services that you mentioned. That some, you know, you, you might be thinking, ah, I've got a physical product. Um, you know, I'm going to definitely have to pay tax for this service. Maybe not. Uh, but it really, again, case by but case by case basis, uh, depending on on what state that you're looking at, and uh, so it's important to to figure that out before you get too far along, of course. Well, and that's true. Um, there are landmines out there. And uh, so I'll go back to Texas. Um, just as a for instance, uh, Texas actually has an office in the state of California for the express purpose of determining uh, entities that have a sales or use tax requirement in Texas. Uh, they basically... Well, that's fascinating. They caught, they <laughs> the caught state one of them. Texas has an office in California. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and they do. And, and they showed up at a client's office and the client was using data processing services inbound into Texas from another state, and they had to pay use tax on that. So, yes, and that's just one aspect of it. Uh, there are a lot of others, like mm-hmm. I said. Um, we spend a lot of time where multi-states are occurring to analyze and, um, ha- and advise on how they should be handling those. Uh, one of the things that comes up is, well, should I register in that state automatically? And the answer is we have to ask questions. And once we get those answers, we can say yes or no. But being proactive Mm -hmm. is critically important here. Uh, A lot of companies, they come in, they start their business, they're in a state, they start, they file in that state. And yet, as many companies do, they're selling their goods, their services across state boundaries without thought to what impact they may have. And then pieces of paper arrive on people's desks or emails, usually paper, and all of a sudden, they find themselves in hot water with neighboring states. You know, they failed to file this, they failed to file that. And believe me, the amount of time and effort to correct an error is much more than the amount of time and effort to do it right up front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially uh, imagining how things can change. You've already mentioned that in, in 2018, you know, there was this change with the, uh, with the Wayfair decision. And then, of course, um, you know, I guess it was back in 2017, I believe, that um, we had tax reform in the U.S. under the current administration, mm-hmm. um, which which was good for foreign investors and in that the, the corporate t- income tax rate in the U.S. previously was 35 percent. It's gone down to 21 yep. percent. Um, so I think that reinforces your point that things change and you've got to really be proactive in, in staying ahead of that. Um, it could be, um, you know, in your favor sometimes in this instance with tax reform. Um, I'm curious specifically on that, you know, what you've seen as the impact there in the marketplace as a result of tax reform. And though we're recording this podcast, I should say, before the U.S. election, it'll be aired (laughs) afterwards. So who knows what the outcome will be. But uh, I'm sure our listeners might be curious based on that outcome. You know, could something change um, fairly quickly under a new administration? Is that something they should really be concerned about? So first to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which is what you're referring to. Yes, it was passed into law in 2017, uh, effective January 1st, 2018. 
we actually started our planning uh, for clients in 2017, the moment it had passed, because we had to get people prepared for the changes that were coming and evaluate uh, entity formation. Do you want to change your entity because of the fact that there's now this new law with a much lower corporate tax rate? By the way, most people didn't do that, just FYI. But the fact of the matter is the Tax Cut and Jobs Act changed the corporate landscape, among others, quite significantly. Uh, it also changed the uh, recognition of revenue from foreign sources if you're a U.S. company, uh, changed how for, uh, U.S. companies are to record uh, foreign-owned subsidiaries, and so that would be the other direction. Uh, it changed a number of things there. It did increase uh, benefits, uh, some new depreciation benefits that uh, weren't available before. Um, there were a couple of things that they attempted to fix. Uh, they failed to do so because of some technical errors in the law, some 800 pages of document. The uh, uh, Paycheck Protection Program Flexibility Act of this year fixed a number of those errors. And so they have now been changed retroactive, I might add, all the way back to 2018. Mm -hmm. So we've also had to undergo uh, a review of a lot of our clients who took one position in 2018, and that position's changed. They can go back and amend their returns, uh, pay lower taxes, or if they had a loss, they can increase their loss. Um, recent changes in the law have allowed companies to carry back losses even further, uh, more robustly, I might add. Uh, we're taking advantage of that. Uh, there are a number of tax credits that came out of laws this year, uh, mostly for uh, retaining employees or making sure that employees were getting paid if, in fact, that they were laid off uh, or they were out sick or caring for family members. Uh, so taking some of the load off of the small, medium-sized businesses in particular uh, and making sure that they could take care of those employees without having, you know, severe economic impact on themselves. So there have been a lot of changes. Mm -hmm. um, they continue as we continue to digest the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. Now, in so far as where we're going, um, I, I really hesitate in predicting how Congress is going to end <laughs> on, on, a, on a day where everything is in place and there are no changes, you know, offing. Um, you know, if, in fact, there is a change, uh, it would depend on a number of factors. Uh, if there's a change in the presidency, but the Senate doesn't change, uh, then you have to have a bipartisan agreement in order for anything to get through Congress for the president to sign into law. And more of the people that talk intelligently about this suggest that in that circumstance, uh, any significant changes in the tax code may not be in the offing. Uh, if it's a complete Democratic uh, administration, uh, there are a lot of people that are pushing very hard to change the corporate rate, uh, change the rates for higher income taxpayers, uh, reverse some of the tax benefits that accrue to entities. How many of those actually get through Congress is a big question. Uh, there are a lot of rules there in yeah. Congress about how things get passed, and it is not an absolute guarantee that simply because the House, the Senate, and the President maybe all be Democratic uh, majorities, that may not be significant enough in order to make some substantial changes in the tax code. So my suggestion is um, don't plan for major changes, but keep an eye on what's going on. Uh, one of the other things to, to remember is Changes that occur, uh, it doesn't move real fast sometimes. And if it happens later next year that there is a substantive change, that change may not be effective at the beginning of the year. Uh, they may roll that change forward to be a 2022 uh, year-end uh, transaction or change, uh, which gives us some time for planning. So, But have they ever rolled it back to the beginning of the year? Yes, they have. Can it happen? Yes. <laughs> 
So gotta gotta be prepared a little bit for for anything, but also um, not let it stand in the way of, of making decisions about the consumer market, which is going to be there regardless. I think we often encounter companies over here that uh, suggest, well, I'm going to you know wait and, until the election's over, or I'm going to wait until I get some certainty on this. Um, so there's constantly a kind of um, uh, a cost-benefit analysis, I suppose, on, on what is a very big decision for every company, um, of course. Well, that's interesting uh, you mentioned honest, that. Um, yeah. Well, no, I was going to say, it's interesting you mentioned that because there have been some uh, professionals that have talked about, you know, what should I make my decision on, tax or economics? And the reality is, is that the economic decision should take precedence. Uh, it doesn't mean one ignores taxes uh, or the complexity of taxes, but the reality is, is that if there is a good market for one's product or services here in the United States, it really is, it behooves a company to take a serious look at doing so. And then just cross the T's mm-hmm. and dot the I's. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's uh, that's always our motto: is uh, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. <laughs> um, along that along that vein, um, you know, I guess an, an investor is always a little bit worried about what they don't know. <laughs> uh, sure. So I'm curious, you know, what are the, what are the major surprises that you feel like, in your experience, international investors encounter when it comes to the U.S. tax code compared to the rest of the world? Well, primarily asking the right questions or being willing to ask, I don't know, or say, I don't know anything, please explain to me how this works. Because if we don't have an effective dialogue at the beginning of the relationship, tax professional to client, the client then can make decisions that are not advantageous to them or even penalize them. And we don't know until all of a sudden we pick up the data months or even the following year and go, why did you do this? Well, we thought it was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it may have been, but now here's the damage, and we can't fix it. So, again, and I, I talk about this to clients all the time, uh, and we're going to have a big push this fall to get people to talk to us now, um, primarily because of the Paycheck Protection Program loans, forgiveness, the deductibility of expenses connected to it. That's, those are all major issues this fall. And we need to get clients to look at this hard and, and carefully to understand what the ramifications are. So proactive, not reactive. And again, it, it, it's not a free lunch. So one has to pay to get that advice. But let's be honest about it. If you fail to make the right decision uh, up front, uh, it can be very expensive to fix it down the road. Mm-hmm. And you're alluding there to obstacles that they can encounter, of course, if, if they don't plan accordingly and they start perhaps selling into the U.S. or expanding into the market without, um, you know, eyes wide open. Maybe you could just speak a little bit to what some of those obstacles can turn out to be. Well, sure. A company may be overseas and they decide they're going to start selling in the United States and they do so directly. Um, there is a form to file. If you operate in the United States, you m- must file a corporate income tax return. It's a variant on the uh, on the standard one, but it has to be filed. And of course, if one fails to do so, one runs into problems. But here's the thing. Is that the best solution? Um, a lot of our clients who are foreign investors, they hold their, uh, their U.S. activities in a U.S. company. So it's a U.S. formed company. Um, it's formed in the United States. It is owned by the overseas investor. And yes, there are additional forms to be filed, but it allows for a barrier, if you will, for the IRS basically to reach through to the parent's income uh, saying, well, you really owe us this much more tax. So 
One of the things we suggest, obviously, is putting in place, you know, a layered um, structure, if you will. Uh, but having said that, um, you know, over the years, it's been determined there are ways and means in order to avoid taxes by moving uh, purchases and sales around the world. Um, there are mechanisms in the United States and most other countries to ensure that that doesn't happen. And this is the field of transfer pricing. Um, we use a professional firm to assist us when dealing with transfer pricing. We've advised all our clients and continue to advise our clients they need to review that. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're trying to avoid taxes in one country or another by shifting the value of goods and services overseas in any direction, um, the taxing authority that's not getting their money, they, they have the ability to audit and demand <laughs> taxes. The United States is very, mm -hmm. very much at the front of that. Um, in the cases where we've had exams and, and uh, a U.S. company has had an overseas subsidiary, um, the auditor, one of the first things out of their mouths was, let's see your transfer pricing and let's see what you do in terms of goods and services moving overseas. And if you're not compliant, uh, the penalties can be significant. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, you've alluded here to a topic that we've covered in another, um, another one of our episodes earlier on. If we have some repeat listeners here, you might recall our in podcast interview um, with Steve Bitley on uh, entity formation, which was quite an enlightening one. I highly recommend folks go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. But it really touches on this, uh, the benefits of, of having kind of an arm's length separation between your uh, corporate headquarters, whether it's in the UK or another European or international market and mm -hmm. the entity in the US, um, because it does allow you to kind of nicely package and separate things um, because as you've alluded to with the, the transfer pricing, you know, there's a lot from a tax planning perspective to think about um, from the outside to structure things uh, so that you're not having to, you know, clean up mistakes and spend a lot of money untangling things that you hadn't clearly thought out from the beginning. I'm sure transfer pricing isn't the only, you know, tax planning item there, um, but uh, perhaps you, you might highlight a few others. Well, and that's true. Uh, so assets, uh, one, where does one park one's assets? We have a very favorable tax treatment of the purchase of physical assets here in the United States. Um, intellectual property. Uh, intellectual property can be purchased or formed here in the United States. The tax advantages of that are relatively small. Um, increasing research. Uh, there's a credit for increasing research year over year. And a number of companies come to the United States and uh, this isn't just market research, by the way. It has to be something new. But they take the product that's been developed overseas and they find that it doesn't necessarily meet all the needs of the United States and they completely revamp it. And they do a true uh, amount of research. Uh, they develop a new product line and they, they release that product and there's a credit available for that. Um, and, and those credits are, are valuable. Uh, there are companies out there that, that do the research on this, basically go in and audit you, um, basically audit the client, and determine what those credits are. Uh, we use those companies. Uh, we don't do that work ourselves, but we use those companies, and they're quite accurate in developing those credits. And some of our clients have yielded substantial results. When they're in a business, they don't even think they have any research. So that's one example. Um, employee credits, uh, there's a vast array of employee credits for obviously U.S.-based employees. Um, and, and it's not just the ones that have come up this year. Uh, there are preceding ones uh, that basically allow for uh, certain classes of individuals when they're hired uh, to be an employee 
all of a sudden yield a credit that that's available either on the federal return or the state return or sometimes even both. Now for a quick break. This week's top tip for the U.S. market is brought to you by Allison Stewart Allen, co-author of Working with Americans, the first ever business manual exclusively about U.S. business culture. One of the top tips for working with Americans is our propensity to plan. So don't be surprised when you're asked to describe your market entry plan, your training plan, your plan to increase revenue, or even your plan to go on vacation. The assumption is always that you'll have a plan because without one, you may not reach your goals. Thanks, Allison. Our listeners can visit the book's website, workingwithamericans.com, to download two free chapters and claim a 20% discount on ordering the book until December 31st, 2020, with the code WWA20. Um, I think, you know, on the whole, what I'm getting the sense for is that you know, international firms really need to seek out that on-the-ground tax advice and support in the U.S. They need to bring in some expertise, um, as you said, to cross the I, uh, sorry, cross the T's and dot the I's. <laughs> um, do you think that you know it is possible for them to do a, a piece of this work in-house? Does it depend on the size of the firm? Is there a way to you know um, to to have their kind of in-house tax team collaborate with, you know, a group like Avidas to streamline this? How do you see that working with some of your existing clients? So in general, uh, it is better uh, for a small firm that has a small or even a regional uh, accounting firm, um, chartered accountant would be in the UK, that handles their tax work there uh, to either reach out to uh, a tax firm like Avidas or somebody else in order to get that U.S. tax advice. A very large firm in the U.K. will undoubtedly have either a corresponding relationship with a firm here in the United States or a wholly owned subsidiary. And obviously, in a situation like mm-hmm. that, they're more likely than not going to reach out that way and, and fully understand that. But most small companies don't have that. They have a small local firm, just like here in the United States, uh, and that local firm may not have a great deal of expertise um, overseas, and that, that has consequences. Um, like I said, it is a very complicated tax environment here in the United States. And for a, a firm, say, in the UK that doesn't have a great deal of expertise in dealing with United States taxation, um, they may give advice that doesn't turn out to be the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly something to be to be wary of um, and to, to have experience working, you know, transatlantically um, with a firm, I think, says a lot about their ability to keep you compliant, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And also from a planning standpoint, because the thing is, if we're working with them and their accountants, um, it gives us the opportunity to discuss, well, this is the situation here in the United States, and they know what the situation is and say, again, let's use the United Kingdom as an example. Well, what's the best plan? Because remember, we're looking at essentially a totality of an entity. Uh, there may be a, a corporate mm-hmm. parent and a corporate subsidiary, but the reality is it's a, it's a, co- a combined operation, if you will, and so they need to look at the totality of their taxes uh, in line with their other operational you know, requirements and their operational needs. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been talking a lot about challenges. Um, we certainly don't want to be, uh, you know, negative Nancy's <laughs> about things, so to speak. Um, where we are trying to do our due diligence in making our clients and listeners aware of challenges. But certainly there are opportunities as well um, for international firms in the tax arena um, and and from growth perspectives. So I wonder if you might 
um, you know, give us some a little bit of sunlight here on this on this topic sure. and talk a little bit about opportunities as well. Well, one of the things that obviously in the United States is that it is a pretty vast market. Uh, there's no question about it. And, you know, the opportunities are here. And, you know, all I've brought up a lot of challenges, especially with regard to states and sales taxes and cross borders and nexus and things like that. I, I really hesitate to tell somebody not to do something like that just because of those. Uh, most of these requirements, again, I'm going to go to proactive versus reactive. If one takes these on early, it is no longer a challenge other than filing a form or dealing with, you know, basically some filings and such. And the tax consequences may be minimal. And then it's not a worry. And one has the ability to get into that state, into that locality or at that market that they've had in their eye on and be able to function and perform and make profits, which is their goal. So mm-hmm. it's it's it is available to anybody. Um, most states, if not all states, have economic development uh, entities within their state government uh, designed to promote state activities, in-state activities. And they go out of their way to help companies cite themselves within those states uh, to, to you know, help them determine you know, what's the best option, what are the best solutions, what are some of the pitfalls, yes. But there isn't a state in the United States that isn't interested in having companies you know, either physically or you know, remotely position themselves in their markets because economic mm-hmm. development means more profits and, quite frankly, more taxes for them. Mm-hmm. Yep, certainly. It's uh, something we're going to be exploring in our season two um, of, of this podcast series because uh, there are there's no shortage of uh, competition for international investment in the U.S. It goes back to the important important point that you made earlier about you know basing it on on the economics uh, mm-hmm. of of the opportunity. Uh, that's something, of course, always to keep in mind. Um, but certainly, creating a balance between those two is really important. It is. And I think that uh, companies that are exploring the possibility uh, need to do their market evaluation, uh, need to determine what, what the market may be for whatever service or goods they're trying to, to sell here in the United States. And once that's done uh, and they have a feel that, yes, there is a market, I believe their next step isn't necessarily entity formation. Their next step is to reach out to a qualified tax and, and or accounting professional here in the United States and start getting a feel for exactly what is it going to entail for them to do that. The market may be too small at the mm-hmm. moment, and they may say, well, we're going to hold off for another year simply because we don't have enough market to support the cost structure that's going to be necessary to make this work. At the same time, they may find that the market is robust. It's ready, willing, and able to take them on. Uh, we've had some conversations this week in meetings here, leadership meetings in, in buildings this week, and found that you know there's, there's opportunities out there um, primarily because some of the smaller companies uh, providing services, in particular services I'm talking about now, um, have been merged out. And so basically you have some very large companies that are not necessarily being as responsive to the market as they ought to be, shall we say. And the more nimble mm-hmm. um, company that has a targeted market and a service to provide or goods to sell uh, can jump right in and get some a substantial market share in short order simply because they're faster, quicker, and smarter. Hmm. That's a really, uh, really interesting viewpoint on the current situation. There's always, you know, um, a little bit of light somewhere uh, in these challenging times, of course, and um, that is certainly one of them. So it's you know mm-hmm. important to look at the situation on the whole 
and then see, you know, where, where is the opportunity amongst all the chaos at the moment? And uh, I think that could be of real interest for international firms that are, that are listening in who are, yes, the U.S. market is very, very competitive, um, but the, you know, from an innovation uh, and commercialization standpoint, uh, you know, it can also, in the markets they've been active in, in Europe, um, they're familiar with that as well. So there's certainly some learnings there that, that they can leverage uh, coming into the, the U.S. market as well. Well, and absolutely, and, and it's pretty common knowledge by now that, that one of the, the weaknesses here in the United States was the uh, healthcare supply system, all right? And um, it, there's a, a vast opportunity, quite frankly, uh, even though you can pretty much buy whatever you need off the shelves now, uh, that certainly wasn't the case six months ago. And who knows what it's going to be like in another six months. So, you know, it's definitely worthwhile for a company that has an established um, business small or medium-sized business in either developing, manufacturing, or supplying those, those devices, those products, uh, to take a look at the United States market. Um, there's, there's still opportunity out there uh, because the way things are looking, uh, and I am certainly not a predictor of the healthcare you know, crisis that we're in right now, but it doesn't appear mm. that it's going away. Uh, the announcements in the mm-hmm, last certainly. two to three weeks suggest that we are seeing another spike. Um, which means there's going to be mm-hmm. greater demand for face coverings and everything else. Mm-hmm. So. Certainly. As you were saying, you know, realizing this market opportunity and digging into it, they shouldn't just initially jump into setting up a company or the formation that first, uh, their first port of call might be talking to a tax or accounting professional. Um, so on that note, I did want to just kind of dig in a little bit to understand the types of services that Avidus Group would help provide to help those companies really streamline their back office and help with that tax planning. Um, could you speak a little bit about how clients kind of first approach that relationship maybe develops over time in terms of the assistance? So um, a lot of our clients come looking for payroll support, and of course that's our core business. Uh, but the thing is, is then the questions arise, well, what are you doing about forming your entity or how are you planning your taxes? And those questions get asked, and a lot of times the answers are, well, we don't know. And that's when we step in. Uh, that would be myself or some of the other senior tax people uh, in my department. Uh, we sit down and we have a conversation with them to uh, get an outline of what their plans are, their economic plans, their operational plans. And then we start talking about, well, these are some of the things that you should be considering. Um, and then if they need, if they're planning on doing it, we will help them form their entities. We'll get them through the, the paperwork uh, processes, if you will, with the various states and the IRS. And once those are completed, we will then take on the responsibility for, uh, we can do all of their accounting here in the United States. Uh, We have a group here in in Billings primarily, but also in Colorado, that do a lot of accounting for a lot of small, medium-sized businesses. Uh, And if they choose to use someone else, we still have the tax professionals. We're actually located in four different states. But in this day and age, that really doesn't mean much. Um, it does give us actually better state mm-hmm. state support uh, because I, I, for instance, am much more uh, conversant in California. Uh, we have an office in Kansas. Uh, I know a little bit about Kansas taxes, but quite frankly, the person that's in charge of the Kansas office has forgotten more about Kansas taxes than I'm probably ever going to know. But we can rely on each other that way <laughs> and then share all that knowledge with, with the client. So a, a client may end up visiting with a primary uh, say myself, but there may be others that step in and have conversations regarding, you know, this is what you should do. This is why you should do it. Um, this is what you need to be looking at in the future. Uh, because they may say, well, we're going to be selling here, here, and here later on. And I said, fine, you don't have to do anything there today, but you need to let us know early 
when you're planning on moving into those states from a sales standpoint, or your sales crest certain thresholds, and then we describe those thresholds. But that's basically what, like I said, proactive planning, um, that's what we want to do, and when we can do it, our clients are much more satisfied because they're not getting the headaches. They're not getting the notices, they're not mm-hmm. getting you know problems, they're not having to deal with you know back and forth with us trying to fix a problem. And that has been something, with the successes we've had have been predicated on the fact that people have gotten in there, They've gotten in there early with us, and they get the right answers to the questions and move forward and execute those. And they execute those answers, mm-hmm. they execute those those uh, methods, and they find themselves in a much better situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so much of what we do as an organization is ask questions because I think you have to be a bit leery when saying when someone approaches you and says, "Well, you know, this is ABC exactly what you need to do." Um, and kind of this boilerplate approach to the market um, is a bit dangerous because every company is so unique. Their business model is a little bit different. They're selling into the market through different channels. They have mm-hmm. different liabilities. So we spend so much time asking questions to really craft a, a kind of custom approach to compliance um, and being sure that it's, that it's a fit for everyone. And it's really that kind of discovery process. Uh, which I think is, is part of the value that we're delivering. And it's really important to understand it because that's very true, is that we bring so much more to the table than just accounting, tax, um, payroll. Uh, we have insurance. Uh, we have a, some seasoned, very seasoned professionals in the insurance industry. They know a great deal about what needs to happen and how to get, it, how to get the right insurance and, and what to pay for the right insurance and so on. Uh, a lot of places don't have that access. Um, you know, a CPA firm, uh, which is the kind of organization I was raised in professionally, um, had relationships with people, insurance and payroll and such, but we really didn't have people in-house. And so getting answers to those kind of questions was always a time-consuming process. Um, For now, uh, I just pick up a phone, and I know who to call. And I can call and ask a question, and if I don't get an answer that day, I'll get it the next day. That kind of responsiveness is critically important when one has to make a quick decision on whether to, say, put employees in a specific state because of the workers' comp rates, just as a for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, most CPAs, and I will grant my, that I am one of them, don't have a great deal of knowledge into the various rates, uh, which states are more stringent than others. But we have people that know that stuff backwards and forwards. Uh, safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, safety, of course, is a, is a, a world that we think occupational safety. Uh, don't want to trip and fall and hurt yourself inside of a business. But now, yeah. there's so much more to that. And we're expanding our services into d- evaluating, determining what safety requirements are, you know, in various industries just because of COVID. Mm-hmm. You're giving uh, quite a nice spotlight for our upcoming uh, insurance <laughs> podcast episode. So, so uh, our listeners are going to be very eager now to dig into that now that you set it up quite nicely. So thanks for that. You're um, quite welcome. Zooming. <laughs> Zooming back out maybe to a 30,000-foot 30, 30, view of sure. this, um, if you kind of had to, to summarize why it's essential for international firms to seek expert help in dealing with their U.S. tax liabilities on both the sales and, and the income tax um, front, why would you say that is? It's more likely than not so different than what one is used to. Uh, many countries, from my understanding, have essentially centralized taxation systems. We don't. Uh, we have one, that's the federal government, and uh, a, a considerable number of others that are going to be, like I said there, it's because of that complexity at that 
we really recommend people, heck, I recommend to my U.S. clients, ask the questions early. It is, it is not, uh, there is an old adage, penny wise and pound foolish. And one tries to save a few bucks in order not to spend the money to get the advice, and they find themselves paying a lot more at the back end. So the, the focus to that answer is we are really complicated in this country, and if you get the right <laughs> advice, you'll be able to navigate it relatively smooth, and you will not have the kind of headaches that people that don't do it the right way have on a daily basis. And it can take years to dig out of that hole. I wonder um, if you might share with us briefly an international client experience that's kind of stuck with you that really illustrates why listeners should really think carefully about this topic. So we have a client who is in the process of uh, filing a, a number of returns. Um, they had some serious accounting issues, and they basically said, well, we're not going to file until we get all of our accounting issues straightened out. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, these accounting issues could have been solved at the very beginning. Uh, and they weren't. And they went years without that. So we just finished a, a six-year package of tax returns uh, for this client, including some states. Um, a couple of amended and four returns that are being initially or originally filed. Now, what this means is, is that this is the beginning of a process that is going to last easily 12 months. I'm, gonna, I'm guessing, and I've talked to actually Steve Bentley, uh, about this. We're looking at perhaps 24 months, especially because of the responsiveness of state and federal government uh, these days on fixing all of the problems that are going to arise. Because the notices are coming mm. and the penalties are coming. The penalty assessments are coming. And we're now going to have to step in and fight all those. And we're going to do our best to, to fight and or mitigate every single one of those. But it's going to take a lot of effort. Now, had they gone about the process of digging out the issues initially, now this goes back to 2013, 2014, and gotten it done right in the beginning and been willing to do it right from that point forward, they would have nearly the problems they're having right now. Um, mm -hmm. And believe me, they're going to spend, like I said, 20, well, we're filing now. Uh, so 2021, 2022, uh, will probably be done by 2022, I think, with all of the notices, I hope. Mm. Well, we certainly don't want our listeners to be in that situation. Oh, so, no. Uh, we've said proactive once. We've said it several times. Um, don't be that client. <laughs> no, no. Let us let us help you plan from the very beginning to, to get things uh, right from the outset. Yeah, it, it is so critical. Um, and, and, I mean, I have other clients that are U.S.-based, and they do the same thing. And, like I said, the problem becomes one that it builds up very quickly uh, because it wasn't dealt with correctly in the beginning. And, you know, I've had clients come to me and we've gone through the processes of, well, what's the best solution? How do we do the best solution? And then execute the best solution. And was it inexpensive? Was it a zero cost? No, of course not. But you know what? They got it done right. You know, I've had clients save mm -hmm. tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxes simply by doing it right. I mean, it's mm -hmm. just a matter of... of Knowing what the law is, and we do, um, asking the right questions, we will, if given the opportunity, and then executing the solution to the best of everyone's ability, and usually very good things happen from behind that. And it's not to say you're not going to pay any taxes. That's going to still happen. Mm -hmm. But to mitigate those taxes is really what our goal is, and to keep people as tax uh, solvent, if you will, uh, or not just compliant, 
but basically make sure that they're paying the least amount of taxes possible uh, within the scope of the government's requirements. Mm-hmm. That sounds like an ideal situation for anyone. Yes. I, I do want to also emphasize um, another point that you made, which is important, I think, and that's that domestic firms in the U.S. have these same problems. So it's certainly not that it's just international clients that we're working with that run up against these issues. Uh, it's just as complicated for U.S. domestic firms, which is why they seek expert uh, guidance on, on managing all of this as well. Absolutely true. Well, unfortunately, uh, Scott, we are coming to the end of this week's episode, which means it's time for our wise words segment, where we would ask for any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with. So I guess the only thing I can really share, and and I I hesitate to revisit complexity, but it is, um, are taxes a certainty in the United States? Yes, they are. Uh, Can they be uh, avoided? Yes, they can. Uh, should they be evaded? No, that's a crime. Let's not do that. Uh, the fact is, is that one can work too much on avoiding taxes to their detriment because now they're basically not making the right economic decisions. So my best advice to somebody is look at the economics of a deal or a process or a market or sales. And if it seems to make sense, ask the right questions. Ask the right questions of a qualified tax professional sooner rather than later and listen to the advice and incorporate it into the plan. That's the best I can offer right now. Well, that is excellent advice. Um, Scott, we really thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your expertise. It's been really fun to speak with you. Well, thank you very much for having me, Morgan. I've really enjoyed it. You've been listening to the America Made Easy podcast with me, Morgan Pierstor. My guest this week was Scott Stevenson. This podcast is produced and edited by Morgan Pierstorf and Rob Eastman in partnership with Newable Levitas. You'll find links to more information on this week's episode and how America Made Easy can help your business in the notes section of this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and introduce a friend. You can also write to us at America made easy at newable.co.uk. Thanks for listening.